Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And as the guy stood up, I hit him in the chest and he fell down backwards and then the gunner stood up and as I fired my third shot I moved my rifle across and fired my fourth shot so now I've got two bullets in the air at the same time three seconds apart my third one missed my fourth one hit him. Welcome back. In November 2009 British sniper Craig Harrison was on active service in Afghanistan when he took out an enemy machine gunner from almost two and a half kilometers away. From the deployments in the Balkans to battles in Iraq and lying motionless for days on end in the desert, this is the story about how he became the world record holder for the longest kill and the price he paid for his service. Before we get into the episode, AG1 are supporting us again this week. AG1 are the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it every morning before I have a coffee and it makes me feel like the first thing I'm doing every day is something that's good for my body, which can be pretty tough when you've got a bit on. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic and more in one simple drinkable habit. So you don't have to take a whole bunch of different things, you can just mix one scoop of powder in water once a day. And if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. And you will be supporting not only your health and your body, but this podcast as well. And we do have one more live podcast, live show available for you to buy tickets to in London. Next Wednesday, the 9th of August, we're at the Grafton in Kentish Town for some stories and a few drinks with rogue warrior Denny Denham about his time in Iraq. Iraq and Sunday Times best-selling author and former prison governor Vanessa Frake. She's got some wild stories. I'll put the link to the tickets in the description of this episode. Tickets are only 15 quid and you get a free Buffalo Trace cocktail or Warner's gin and tonic when you arrive and some nibbles as well. The nibbles have been pretty good so far on the other shows so I'm expecting big things from the Grafton. The show is really intimate and interactive, so you can ask the guests loads of questions and get involved in the show as well. So go and get your ticket. I'd love to see you there, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Craig Harrison, thanks for coming on the show, mate. No worries. Pleasure. You you joined the Army to be a farrier, didn't you? It seems a long way off sniper school. I know. People always say that. They say, what? You go down a path and you just fucked off on a different trungent. But uh, yeah, I... I love horses. I love horses. And they give me a lot of comfort when I was younger. You know, I rode when I was little. Lucky enough to have horses when I was younger. And my granddad always said to me, get a trade, get a trade. You know, because I was born in a Cheltenham. And where Cheltenham is, it's just full of elderly people. There's not much jobs prospects there. And um, I thought, well, what can I do? I thought, well, I'll join the Household Cavalry and become a farrier. And I thought to myself, well, the army would take you to the limit as far as you can go and then they leave the army and 
open my own business up and become a farrier, you know. It, it never, ever happened. I, I was going through my um, apprenticeship to go down to Myrtle Mowbray to be a farrier. And because I'm a bit dyslexic, so every time they did homework, I was doing more illustration work than written, and it wasn't good enough for them. So um, I never got picked to go down to Melton to become a farrier. So then you go to Bosnia, pretty grim, some of the stuff, like pretty grim entry into service. I mean, there was an entry, there was an incident in your book about some Gurkhas getting blown up. They were stacking mines, uh, anti-tank mines, and I parked the Land Rover because I took the squadron leader to a meeting and I was waiting for him to come out of this meeting and uh, they were stacking mines, deactivated landmines. And obviously one of them was still quite active. So when the pressure of the mines being put on top of each other, uh, it, it went off. And uh, just evaporated these Gurkhas. Yeah, there was nothing left. I think they found a boot or something and bits and bobs everywhere there was. It was a Fuck fucking nightmare. And my wagon got hit and it nearly toppled my wagon over with the, the shockwave. You know, I thought, what the fuck was that? You know, uh, I remember an officer coming out of the tent. He going, oh, I want these mines over here, not there. So they had to restack them. But if they didn't have to restack them, it wouldn't have gone off. But it's one of those things, isn't it? Shit, those poor bastards. What yeah. a shit job as well. Like, you kind of know yeah. that something could go, if it's going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong real quick and real bad. Yeah, they did for them guys. And some of the stuff that the Serbians were doing was pretty pretty horrific, eh? When we went to Kosovo, we pushed through Pristina, which was the main city there, and we pushed up to the Serbian border. And But you have a thing like a troop house, so where the squadron will stay and be base located and work from operationals from there, then we go off to do other stuff, you know, patrols, um, tasks, missions. And we had to clear this college because that's where we stayed. And I remember me and my friend went down to the basement and it was a long corridor. And each corridor, so down this corridor had doors and every door had a mattress in it, which was covered in blood. And uh, we walked down and another room covered in mat- mattress, covered in blood, another room covered in blood. And we thought, what the fuck's going on here? Well, anyway, down the bottom was one single room with the door was shut. So my friend gave me covering fire. I kicked the door in and it was full of um, naked women that had been raped and molested by the Serbians. Yeah, and they were using the uh, mattresses for raping them on there for... And the last one they wanted to see is a, a male soldier with a gun, you know. So I took my helmet off. I took my body armour off. I I took my... I gave my my mate my rifle and I calmed him down. And then I told him to go and get a female regimental police, you know. And um, they came down and dealt with the situation. Yeah, it was horrific. Was it around this sort of time that you, you, you're starting to become desensitised? Because I guess you have to when you're saying shit like this. Do you know, when you're on tour, you haven't got time to think. It's not full-on fighting. You do have downtime, and you need to occupy yourself on that downtime by reading, doing stuff, fitness, and other stuff like that to occupy yourself. But no, you don't really have time to think about what you've done or what you've seen at all. 
I think is when you come off tour and things slow down, that's when you start thinking about your actions or you start thinking about what you're seeing. You get your true cost of war from your side of it. Yeah. Those girls, they were... They were being discarded as well, and their bodies were getting burnt and things, weren't they? Where the college was, there was a, a road just outside, and it went up a hill. And at the top of this hill was a, like a little compound, and uh, they were cutting their heads off, burning the bodies, and letting the dogs play with their heads and putting bets on what dog would beat what dog up over a head. And it was um, yeah, really horrific stuff, you know, digging mass graves up and, you know, uh, what they had dug. It, it was... Yeah, it's pretty nasty stuff that we saw. Did you dig up some mess graves? Yeah, we did, yeah. Yeah. It was weird because um we were fighting troops and we was only meant to stay there for three months and then get pulled out and then peacekeeping troops would come in and do the hearts of mines. Uh but it never happened like that because they were short of men, so fighting troops became hearts of mine troops. So John up the road, who's been shooting at you for the last three months, and you're now giving him a football and coloured crayons. You Aww. know, it's just weird, weird how the whole situation works, really. So John up the road, that was a soldier, decides that he's no longer a soldier that you were fighting yeah. against. You have to win his heart and mind. And in the yeah. back of your head, mind, yeah. in the back of your mind, you're thinking this could have been the guy that was looking after those girls. Yeah, for sure, without a doubt. That is a hard thing to process. It is, it is. But you're there to do a job and you need to swallow it a bit, you know, and just crack on and do it. And, you know, we were going into villages in Kosovo and um, they were just full of women because all the males had been shot. And you can see where the Serbians have shot all the males, um, against this wall from little children up to elderly elderly men fighting age they've all been shot so these villages were just full of women with no males in at all wow that's yeah that's a heavy introduction into combat so when you go to iraq that's when you first start thinking about maybe going into sniper school becoming a sniper you had a kind of a a meeting in there and it was in a in a stadium yeah yeah we went to well when we left kuwait over to iraq uh, we're fighting all our way and we had to the americans went to baghdad and the english troops went to a major city called alamara and we had to fight our way in there and then we stayed in a football stadium uh, massive football stadium was and we made that a base location you know and we fortified it and I remember going for a walk one day and I went up these steps and I walked around the top of the stadium and they had snipers positioned around the top of the stadium I started talking to this one guy he was from the Royal Irish and do you know what he didn't take his eye off the scope looking for the spot and scope looking through his um, sniper scope and the way he talked to me and I thought yeah, this is this is brilliant, you know, and it's so mature for a young lad as well. And they got treated differently, as I saw. And I thought, this is what I want to be. I want to be a sniper. But in my regiment, there was no roles for snipers. Uh-huh. So every time you finish a tour, your sergeant major would come round to you and say, "You need to do career courses. What do you want to be?" And I say, "I want to be a sniper." No, you can't because there's no role for it in the House of Cavalry. Okay, then next tour you go on. What do you want to be? I want to be a sniper. 
you know, and every time I just kept saying, I want to be a sniper, I want to be a sniper. And eventually they allowed snipers into the household cavalry or into the armoured role because it's a big asset. Snipers on the ground could seriously fuck a mission up, you know, because we're quite sneaky. And I went on my snipers course and every weekend that I had off, when we had it off, I was in the tailor shop in camp and I was stitching, making my ghillie suit and um, so just making my trousers. Just for people that don't know what a ghillie suit is, a ghillie suit something that snipers wear when they're on mission to basically if you were trying to blend in with a bush a ghillie suit would look like a bush yeah you'd make it yourself and the best thing there's a saying that veg is the edge that's what they say so vegetation is better than man-made fibers so um, that's what they say veg is the edge so So, yeah talk me talk me through your process of, of of building your own ghillie suit so basically, you start from the bottom layer and you've got hessian, or called burlap, and you build it up from the bottom up and you lap it so it looks like scales on you. And then you get a wire brush and then you wire, you, you wire it with a wire brush to make it all fluffy. But when it's wet, it is fucking heavy. Oh, yeah. So what I did, I only put simple layers on my ghillie suit and then I put through the elastics, you got, your ghillie suit will have elastics on so you can put vegetation. I put string on mine so I could tie it like a bow so it's easier to get the vegetation off and replace it all the time because vegetation starts dying as soon as you pick it. Then it starts wilting. So you're in a bush that's alive <laughs> and your ghillie suit's all wilting <laughs> and you know, going brown, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. So you need to be... Your field craft needs to be on the board all the time. Yeah, you don't want to look like a Christmas yeah, tree in you, January. No, no, you know, and that's how you make a good ghillie suit. When mm. it comes to, I guess, like I'm thinking about someone listening to this now, and we'll come back to the sniper training. Someone listening to this now that's got no military experience that likes hunting or likes, you know, for me, I love duck shooting. When I go home to New Zealand, I love going duck shooting or deer shooting or going going hunting. Like, What what tips would you give someone that's into hunting when it comes to hiding? Have good backdrop. So, I mean, have backdrop means have good cover behind you. Have good front drop, so there's good cover in front of you, but enough so you can see out of it and have good top cover. So you got three because you got a member in your head. It's a three sixty battle. So if you're covered three sixty and no one can see you, you're going to win. For animals, make sure you're downwind, you know, because the sense of smell give you giving them away. And what I used to do with my ghillie suit, I used to put it in the garden and leave it there to rot, and it used to stink because the well, first thing I didn't want to do is put a ghillie suit on. It smelt nice because that would give your position away as well. So. Yeah, stay downwind, have good front drop, back drop and over and overhead cover. Make sure that you can see at the front of your front drop and make sure that your ghillie suit smells and doesn't smell of um, like yourself and stuff like that. In your book, you talk about you stinking, like you even your fellow soldiers that have been on tour that would probably also stink. But Dullet Harrison, you fucking stink. How bad did you stink? You think I was in position. I could be in position because the sniper's sustainable on the ground for about 48 to 72 hours and you're not washing. You know, you're in the desert, you're sweating. So, and you end up peeing yourself. So, yeah, you end up smelling. 
and yeah, I smelt and my, my ghillie suit smelt and everything because last thing I don't want is to be found. And last thing I don't want is because I remember training as a sniper and I remember being in a bush and I was looking down at this makeshift base and there were soldiers in this makeshift base and they were cleaning their teeth. And because I stunk so much, I could really smell the mint, you know, really smell the toothpaste. Um, There must have been about a good 50 yards away and I could really smell their toothpaste as they were cleaning their teeth. And and in my head, that's a prime example that you need to smell. You need to, you know... And then when you go back to camp, you sort of hygiene out. You wash yourself, you clean yourself, and you have a shave, and you crack on. I bet that feels amazing. Yeah, it does, without a doubt, without a doubt. And that's what you used to look forward to, you know, getting back, having a shower. Until somebody says the showers are broke, you're like, ah, fuck (laughs) Even just taking a piss standing up would be nice. Yeah, it would do. And a shit. Oh, did you have to do that when you're in your ghillie suit? Yeah, yeah, you roll over and shit in a little Tupperware tub. You either get your number two to wipe your ass for you. Really? Or you do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, So the guy there spotting with you you would wipe your ass for you? Yeah, yeah, you become quite close as a unit, you know. You get to know your habits, you get to know his. So you got to like each other. Because if he's got annoying habits, you're there forever with him in a bush. He's going to annoy the fuck out of you. How do you you train to... Was was there exercises that trained you to lie still, or were there things? Yeah. yeah. What I used to do, I used to put a ten p piece or fifty p on the end of my barrel, right at the end, and then I used to practice opening the bolt, shutting it, closing it, flipping it open, and back out. So if the fifty p fell off, that means I'm going too quick. So I put the fifty p back on. And what I used to do was to put a laptop down the bottom of the corridor and put a film on. And I used to look through my scope and just watch a film for about an hour and a half to two hours just lay there on the ground. Ah, yeah, smart. so I've got something I'm looking at and I can hear it because I've got Bluetooth in, so I can hear the film, but I'm just there practising opening the bolt, closing the bolt as slow as I can. And it's pretty good with the film as well because you can put your crosshairs on the actors as well. During your training, you, I mean, you mentioned blending in before. There was an exercise where you, you're given 15 minutes to go and blend into a gorse bush, wasn't there, or something like that? Yeah, what it is, is you, your last exercise, because um, you get badge test. Now, Andy, I can take you in the bush and shoot a rifle. Easy. Sniper rifles, learning the scope, learning your positions. I could probably teach you long-range shooting in half a day and you'd be hitting a target from nearly 2Ks away. Not a problem, Yeah. The hardest bit is, is being a sneaky bastard and being a sniper. And that's the camouflage and concealment. That's the navigation. That's the crawling on your belly. Not being seen is the hardest bit. And I remember my last stalk of my badge tests. We had two hours to get into position and you had to wait up to 36 hours. Now, that target could pop up in half an hour you've been in position. Or it could happen 14 hours. Or you could be sat there for 36 hours and it'll pop up. So you had to be awake for 36 hours and looking for your scope, scanning the arcs. Now this bit of paper will come up and it's no bigger than A5. And it'll have a letter on it. 
and you have to tell the instructor what letter it was. So, and it would only be up for five seconds. So if you drift <laughs> off in your headsets, you would hear one, two, three, four, five, target down. And you're like, ah, fuck, I didn't even see it. And he failed. Did they, would they tell you that the target was up? Yeah, they tell you the target. Oh, you have five seconds. Yeah. So. And oh, it, you have five seconds to spot it. And it could be anywhere in front of you. During World War Two, the Germans, when they were doing the Blitzkrieg thing, they were on the Perviton, which is like straight meth, right? Well, were you guys? Did you guys have anything to keep you awake for thirty six hours? No, nothing at all. Just training. Just had to keep you, just training. Yeah, they called it dry training, you know. And it's a perishable art. More you do it, better you get at it. When I first left the army with PTSD, I had trouble sleeping, but I had trouble sleeping anyway because. I was used to being awake for long periods of time. Mm, I guess you're training your body to stay awake. How do you blend into urban environments? Same, exactly the same. You'd get a, a boiler suit and you would paint it brick colours to whatever you your environment you're going in. So if I was going into a housing estate and it was a brand new housing estate and all the bricks were like orange, I would spray my ghillie suit orange so I can blend in. So it's all about blending in. It's all about changing the cam. And my backpack would always have an urban ghillie suit in it. So if I was going for a field and then my target went into an urban situation, I can just change my ghillie suit over to an urban situation. Fuck, I'd hate to have you hunting me. (laughs) Jesus. And what I did, I had um, some combats and I took them to the tailor shop and I asked them, could you put another another shirt inside this shirt to make it bigger and the trousers bigger. So when I laid on the ground, I looked like a flat object. I didn't look like a sniper. I just looked like a bit of the ground. What about wind direction and wind strength? Like how do you how do you judge that? Is there, are, there, are you looking for cues that are on the ground where your target is or is there some sort of math in behind it? Yep, so you'd have um, your, your rifle in your barrel goes right. So it's called spin drift. So when your bullet leaves the rifle, it will naturally go spin right. So you need to put more left on your scope to bring it more centralised. And everyone thinks a bullet goes straight. It doesn't. It arches in the sky and it does a big arch. And it'll lay quite flat for 300 yards before it starts raising up. And the highest point in that bullet is called the culmination point. That's the highest point of that bullet. And so if I was shooting at 1,000 yards the highest point of that bullet will be 700 yards. So it's always three quarters of the distance you're shooting, the highest point of that bullet, and then gravity will take over and it will come down. Yeah, so you've got to count spin drift and you've got to look. I always believe if I'm looking at the target, look where the target is, if there's any wind, because it'll leave your barrel at um, supersonic rate, right? There's three stages to a bullet. So it leave the bullet has leave the barrel at supersonic, and then it will go transonic when it starts wobbling. And if it could talk to itself, it would go. Well, I'm going to sort myself out in a minute because it's sorted itself out. It's lost a lot of energy, so it goes subsonic. Okay, and because that bullet's subsonic now, it's going slower. Wind will take more effect on that bullet. So if you can judge the wind by the target instead of coming at your barrel you're going to hit that target. So what are you looking for at the target? You're looking at a lull in the wind. So if anything, um, like a bit of plastic bag, 
um, leaves on the trees, you know, um, something that will recognise it. So if you look at a tree itself, if the tree up above, the highest point in that tree is moving, that's gusting. All right. So if it's middle, it's moderate. If it's low, it's low. All right. So you can moderately adjust the winds looking at a tree itself. But there's loads of stuff out there that um, moves around. Looking at litter, there's litter everywhere. Looking at a crisp packet blowing away and stuff like that. It's If you have a front wind going forward, it's called a fishtail wind. That's probably the best wind to have coming up behind you. And you obviously are in different environments and shooting a gun in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's going to be quite hot. Does the temperature make a difference as well? Oh yeah, massively. Humidity will make that so it make that bullet go more slower. Because if I put a fish tank full of water, okay, and I put a bullet on a bit of wire, and I've got one end of the fish tank to the other, and I pull that bullet across, yeah, the water's going to act as a barrier, right. isn't it? And the bullet's going to act it's coming through, and it's exactly the same with heat. If it's really, really hot. You know, the dense heat weather, the bullet's going to go slower. Same with the cold. If it's really cold, the bullet's going to go slower as well. So once you're fully qualified, you go to Iraq. Can you remember your first patrol with the sniper gun? Yeah, it wasn't like a patrol. We were a mobile unit, like a MOG. It's a mobile operational group in the desert. And it was the it's in the Maysan Desert. And the Maysan Desert is it's near Alamara. You could be 100 miles of radius of absolutely fuck all. You know, it's like being in the Sahara Desert, I suppose. And it made me laugh because you always have a kid come up to you with wanting water and you think, where the fuck's he just come from? We are 100 miles away from anything. We kept getting mortared all the time. We couldn't figure out why we were getting mortared because we were in a sort of like a covert situation. And then we'll move and then we get mortared again. Then we'll move and get mortared. And we found out that there was a guy on a motorbike and he was dicking us, basically. He was scouting us. So every time we stopped, he would get our coordinates and then the insurgents would fire mortars into our location, So, which was pretty dangerous. So something had to be done. And um, I got the green light to uh, take the, the guy out. And that was my first sniper mission. That must have been a change up for you. I mean, you you'd seen some pretty gruesome stuff, but shooting someone with a sniper rifle is obviously a lot different to shooting someone with a normal rifle because I'm guessing it's a lot more intimate because you're actually looking at this person up close in a scope, right? Yeah, you're looking personal, personal. He was just over 600 yards away, and what happened is um, the mog went off on its own and left me behind by yourself. Yeah. So they didn't go too far, but I wanted to draw the motorbike out and it worked. I drew him out and as he was going across, I I shot. I hit the motorbike and then he stood up and then he was looking to find out where he was coming from. And then then I whacked him. Yeah. You guys had some pretty intense battles there as well at one point. Can Can you tell me about the base that you guys... We're at when you when you started off. Yeah, so in Iraq, we're in um, we're based from the airport, uh, Basra Airport, and then we um, 
went off to um, Basra Palace where um, Saddam Hussein's palace was and that was me and my number two and we stayed there and we went on a few missions from that location and then we went to a place called the P-Jock which was the job of the P-Jock was to look after the prison next door because it had some high-ranking insurgents in there but the P-Jock was only manned by 18 guys you know, and that's not including fighting troops. That's including chefs, clerks, you know, officers and stuff like that. But there was only two snipers there, which is me and my number two. They had some fighting troops there, like six other fighting troops. And we had to man the roof of this, uh, the P-Jock. It was like a little tower block, um, only six stories high. But from the palace to the P-Jock, it takes you 10 minutes to walk, but in a vehicle, it takes you two hours because you get fucking smashed by the insurgents. You get RPG'd, you get shot at, roadside bombs, everything. And it just takes such a nightmare to get there. But once you're there, from 11 o'clock at night till five in the morning, it was the gates of hell had opened up and it was full on fucking fighting. Full on fucking fighting. And... The next night would be exactly the same because they wanted to extract these high insurgent leaders out of the prison and they were just constantly... I remember once I rang my wife up to say goodbye because we were we were going to get overrun. You know? Really? That so, bad? Yeah, I rang her up. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said to her, you know, uh, I love you and I'll ring you in the morning. I promise you I'll ring you in the morning. And she wanted to know what the noise was because of explosions and firing and all that. And I said, look, I've got to go. I've got to go. I said, I love you. Everything's okay. You know, um, I'll ring you in the morning. And I rang her in the morning and I said, everything's fine. And she goes, what was that? And of course, it was on the fucking news as well, wasn't it? So, you know, and the, the propaganda of the news as well made it even twice as worse as it fucking was. So uh, she was going, why didn't he tell me? Why? I thought, oh, I guess I didn't want to worry you, you know. But yeah, it was pretty hair-raising. Fucking hell. And then, oh my God. It's a completely different world from Afghanistan then as well. It's like you're going from this urban kind of situation. Afghanistan's a completely, completely different environment, isn't it? Yeah, completely. Weather's the same. The sound's the same. But yeah, completely, completely different can you remember your first mission there? Gosh, so many, so many. I remember the last mission I ever done, I had to look at an IED layer. He was an IED maker and he was going through the compound and as he was going through the compound, he was holding all this um, explosive stuff and I hit him and he blew up, uh, but it blew half the fucking compound up as well and it blew half... The wall down, it blew the car up, it blew... It was like something out of a Hollywood film. I thought, fucking hell, you know? And, yeah, so that's, I remember I remember that clearly. It's like you'd expect the guy to hit the floor, you know, because you shot him. <laughs> he just 
just blew up to fucking nothing. Because he had IDs you know? on him. And, but I didn't know he had them on him. So I just thought he was carrying stuff into the compound. So I hit him and yeah, he just fucking evaporated. And I thought, yeah, great. Jesus. Yeah. Time to go home. Bloody hell. On your second tour, there was a, a machine gunner you had to take out. We got told to look into this village and it was a place called Talajan. It was in the north of Musakala. And it was our mission to look down into this village. And there was the Afghan army, but they were mixed with UK troops because they were training them how to do soldiering skills. And we called them the omelette because they mixed in together. And it was their job to go into this village and flush the Taliban out. But they felt confident with high-caliber weapons on the hillside, giving them protection. Um, otherwise, the Afghan army wouldn't have gone anywhere. So it was my orders to lay covering fire on top of the hill, looking down into the village. So I got my sniper rifle off, and um, I was looking into the village, and it was just full of Taliban, just full of them, and they were all keying up to attack. And I had an interpreter with me, and he's got a radio called ICOM, and it's a thing called ICOM chatter, so it's tuned into the Taliban frequency. Somebody was giving him orders, going, yeah, they're coming, they're walking past this tree now. And he said, yeah, he's, they're getting orchestrated from somewhere, and I checked everywhere, and I saw a glint in the distance, and I looked, and I got my laser binos out, and I lasered, and it three lines just came, no, four lines just came up, and I thought, fucking hell. So I lasered again, four lines come up. So it was over the distance of my laser binos. So I knew it was over the capability of my sniper rifle because my rifle only goes 1,500 yards in theory. So I took nine shots and it was called bracketing. So my first shot dropped. So I saw where it dropped and I just aimed a bit higher, aimed a bit higher, aimed a bit higher, aimed a bit higher. And finally I hit the compound wall and it took six seconds for the bullet to hit, leave me to hit this compound wall. Six seconds. And yeah, six seconds of flight. I was timing it in my head. And it, the the ICOM chatter went quiet. And then all we heard was a voice going, I can't direct you on now because I'm getting shot at from somewhere. And that somewhere was from me. So now the Taliban in this village are all blind. So when the patrol goes in, the Taliban are a bit headless but the Taliban were waiting for the go-in-a-kill box. Now, kill box is a place on a battlefield where there's no cover, there's nowhere to run, and it's a perfect opportunity for the enemy to do mass destruction, mass casualties. And they were trying to and get the, the omelette soldiers, your yeah. allies, the guys, yeah. the Brits and the Afghans, to go yeah. into this kill into zone. This, which they did, which they did. And... Uh, Hell just opened up, you know, fire, gunfires. They were taking casualties. So what I'd done, I told the three vehicles that I had, leaving my vehicle on top of the um, hillside, to go down into the kill box and act as a buffer between the patrol and the village. And my lads were just putting loads of covering fire down, giving enough time for the patrol to get all their wounded out and stuff like that, you know, and get into some cover. But on my right side... My spotter spotted somebody and I looked and I thought well, he was worried about him because I was worried about getting flanked because as a sniper, you only fire one to three shots max and then you got to move position. 
I've been there all morning shooting. Yeah. You shot like so nine shots in a row. Take long. Yeah. So it doesn't take long for them to go, yeah, he's over there. So I looked for my scope and he was like 675 yards where I remember it. And I thought, is he a marker? And I saw a weapon on him. So I opened fire and I shot him. He fell down and he wasn't a marker. He had knocked the head off an irrigation pump and it flooded all the irrigation field where my vehicles were. So my vehicles are now stuck in the mud, wheels spinning, and they can't get out of this kill box. Jesus. Um, I was taking targets out in the village and everything like that. And then the, the battle, you had a lull in the battle when it went really, you could hear a pin drop. All I heard was do-do-do-do, And I thought, where the fuck's that coming from? And I looked at my lads on the wagons and I saw the water around them was getting sprayed. And I thought, fucking hell, you know, they're getting shot at from somewhere. And it's an automatic weapon as well. And I looked everywhere where I'd engage people and I couldn't find anything. The only place I didn't check is where I shot in the morning. So I looked up and there were two people there with a PKM belt-fed machine gun. So I knew where I was shooting because I shot my nine shots there in the morning. So I did my first shot. Uh, I missed. I did my second shot. And as the guy stood up, I hit him in the chest and he fell down backwards. And then the gunner stood up. And as I fired my third shot, I moved my rifle across and fired my fourth shot. So now I've got two bullets in the air at the same time, three seconds apart. My third one missed, my fourth one hit him. And the only reason I knew why I hit him, because of the distance, is because we had to retrieve the weapon system instead of it going back into enemy hands. But the weapon system had gone, and the, it was just the bodies on the floor. And an Apache helicopter came up next to me, and he uh, pointed where we were getting engaged from, and he lasered it, and he fingered to me on the, in the thing 2,475 yards away. And I went, I didn't, I didn't know at the time, I just went, yep, yeah, nice one. Okay, job done, extract my lads out, let's go home for tea and medals. You know, and um, look at battle wounded blokes and shot up, but luckily no casualties. And you know, we got back and sit around an open fire and just talk about what went on. You know, and laugh about it, and it's the nervous laugh in it because how lucky we were, sort of thing. You know, how yeah. do you know that the the guy was the guy you? How do you know it was your bullet that hit him? I was the only one. I was the only one shooting. I was the only one shooting. The patrol were gone. They were dealing with their casualties. My lads were in cover, um, so they were, they would and they couldn't engage anyway because the oscillating ground, uh, where the machine gunners were facing, they could they couldn't have opened fire anyway. Uh, I just had a perfect Jesus. view of it. What sort of damage is it? A three three eight? Is that three three eight? So is that bigger yeah. than a three oh eight? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So if you so if you think of a three or eight the size of your little mm. finger, you think of a three three eight the size of your thumb. Right. So what sort yeah. of damage would that do to someone at that sort of range? So do you remember I said the bullet the bullet's got what three phases? So this bullet's left my rifle at supersonic, it's gone transonic, now it's gone subsonic. And I think um so some guys worked it out that it hit the target at forty miles an hour. 
So if you were driving a car at 40 miles an hour, you'd see my bullet next to it flying through the air, you know. If they had body armour on it, if they had body armour on, um, it would have bounced off them, but they didn't have body armour on, so. You you got shot in the head when you were out there, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. I was on a I was on another mission um, in a place called Minden, north of Musakala. And uh, our job was to secure the high ridge on the left-hand flank. And... I didn't check this dead bit of ground and I thought I haven't checked there yet. So I went over there to check it and there were three Taliban there loading up with RPGs and um, AK-47s. And But they didn't engage me. A guy from the right side started engaging me and I extracted. Do you know what? I To this day now, it's my driver's recognition of what I'd done because I haven't got a fucking clue what really? I've done. And apparently I got hit in the helmet on my right side, an inch above my ear. It knocked me out for 20 seconds. I nearly I nearly fell out the vehicle door because the door's like pop studs. And I fell out the door and my driver grabbed me, dislocated his shoulder, grabbing me because um, I've got all my gear on. I've got back, back in the wagon. I've engaged with my GPMT machine gun. And then I got hit in the ammo box. The ammo box crushed, so the machine gun can't be fed anymore. So I took my SA-80 out and I started engaging. And then I got hit in the chest in my body armour, hit in the um, strap of my webbing, and then hit in my helmet. Well, I got hit in the helmet before that. And then um, wild. the wagon got hit when we did a battle damage calculation, because you meant to do a battle damage calculation. They hit my fuel tins, my spare wheel, my jerry cans. About 136 times my wagon got hit. And you were hit by an anti-tank mine while you were there. Yeah, so three weeks later, I got hit by a 30-kilo anti-tank mine. It blew me out of the vehicle, um, hit me on the right side again. Um, So my brain swelled up um, from the incident. Um, So I had concussion still from the bullet, but I... I sort of lied to the MO medical officer, said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Just got a headache, that's all. I didn't feel right, but it's part of the job, and I wanted to be with my men. And then, um, yeah, the mission was we had to give Overwatch again as snipers. And then once the job finished, it was half past four in the evening, and my front vehicle call sign stopped. I jumped out and I ran to him. I said, look, mate, what's wrong? He said, Craig, I've got a bad feeling about this. And so what's he says, listen. And he was dead quiet. No kids out, no nothing. You can always sense when the shit's going to hit the fan, you know. So I scooted around the edge of the village and they mined all around the edge of the village to make us go into the village to attack us. And I'm, yeah, I hit a 30 kilo anti-tank mine on the right side. My driver was totally messed up, fucked his legs, everything. My gunner went deaf. He fell off the back. I flew out to the left side. I broke my scaphoid wrist and radius on both arms. I got a brain injury and my hips were fucked as well. Yeah. I guess like it's it's battle after battle, war story after war story. I mean, how how is this starting to rack up in your mind mentally? Are you starting to go... I'm like... Obviously, the head knocks alone can cause some sort of depression or some sort of mental aspect outside of war, outside of battles. But those 
on top of going through what you're going through? Like mentally, how are you starting to stack up? Do you know what? When I when I got blown up, I was in casts and I was I was home for Christmas. I remember I couldn't even wipe my own ass. You know, my wife had to wipe me, do everything, and and then they took the cast off me six weeks later. Maybe do ten press ups and sent me back out. No, they did to Afghan. I remember going to a place called Fod Edinburgh, north of Musakala, um, in a, in Afghan. And then they sent me to a place called Pandas Ridge. I was going to ask you about that. I was on my own. I had no, I had support, and they were like a good two hundred meters away, and I was on my own in the mountain, shooting down into the village. Now this village was the main supply route for weapons into Afghan, and it was our job to engage targets. And because I was a sniper, and because I had a, a, a good scope on me, and and I was a good judge of what's good and what's not. You know, they said they, that's what they put me up there. I was there for seven days, not moving in the hills. Before, when you yeah. when you came back, and we'll come back to Pandas Ridge, but when you come back onto the front line, is it true that there's like a warehouse or a storage room with all the injured soldiers' kit and you just go back in there and it's all yeah. covered in blood? And- yeah. Yeah. And they, I remember the store bloke, because he, he, we called it Slipper City, because they don't go to the front line. So their, their jobs is the stores. So before you go to the front line, I wanted my body armour. and Because uh, my wife put a, a little garden angel in my plate, in my body armour. And I had this body armour on. I said, no, I want mine back. And my lad saw the most action. So I went on tour with 16 guys. I came back with six. And all the gear in this ISO container was all my lads. So it was like boots with blood on it, helmets with blood on it, body armour and stuff like that. And the storeman was a bit, I was shell-shocked by then. Something was not right with me then. And he was going, is this yours? No. How about this one? No. What about this one? And he was just covered in blood and I was just seeing it and I was reliving it, you know, and I thought... Yeah, and I remember getting mine out and I remember unzipping the body armour and seeing my the garden angel that my wife got me. Yeah. So how was it on Panda's Ridge? How, how long were you up there by yourself? Altogether, I was there for two weeks, but I was stationary longest for seven days. And one spot for seven and days? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. And I made a flag out of a a bit of wire and a bit of parachute and the flag was no longer probably than like 10 inches wide 10 inches long and I used it as a wind meter because it was quite hard to just to adjust the wind so what I had to do I had to crawl forward as far as I could without being seen to plant this flag out and crawl back again to give me a rough idea what the wind was like because there's a, there's a thing called a wadi system and it's a dry riverbed. So you're in a mountain and you've got a wadi system, a riverbed, and then you've got the village. And the wind used to really go down this wadi system, you know, act as like a big tunnel funnel sort of thing. So I had to know how strong the wind was going, you know, down there. So, yeah, so how far did you have to I've crawl? Uh, like, how, how close did you get to the enemy and plant this flag? Probably about 300 metres. 
300 meters into the wadi itself. So could they, if you had a stood up during this crawl, they would have spotted you? Right out. Yeah, right out. I saw them, um, I saw them walk How past. How close were they to you? They walked past. Uh, probably a good 10 meters away from me, walking past. So you were 10 meters away from these guys and in your yeah. ghillie suit? Yeah, and then I crawled back again. How long did it take you? Going back, going backwards. By the way, not forward, because oh. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be feet away. I wanted to always face the enemy. And how long did it take so, you? I could tell. It's fucking like long a day. Time. No, it wasn't in the day I did it. I did it at night. And do you know what the scary thing is? The Taliban were patrolling properly, like British troops, Arab formation, single file, taking the they were, fucked up how they were doing it. You know. Very disciplined. <sighs> Fucking hell, that's loose. And then, so so you're up on Pandas Ridge. Like, is much going on? Are you are you, are you shooting at people once you get back up there? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I am. Yeah, doing my job. I don't want to say too much, but yeah, I was I was, did my job, did my job, what I had to do. And then a certain call sign behind me. I was there for seven days. And they were looking for me because of the amount of stuff that I'd done. And um, it was coming over the radio, the ICOM chatter that they were looking for me over the net. Well, the Taliban so, were looking for um, you. Yeah, looking for me because I was doing a lot of stuff. Not Find from, the sniper. Not from Panda's Ridge, from other stuff that I'd done on tour. You know, my name was out there. Well, oh yeah, we'll come. We'll come so, to that. So you you'd come home after Panda's Ridge. Once you once you come home, um, the press wants to speak to your troop when you return home, don't they? Yeah. So basically, we have medals parade. The medals parade is is a big family event. All the family come, and then media will be there as well. All the media people, but they get um, escorted around by a captain an officer and basically because my lad saw a lot of shit on tour we had the most battle stories I kept saying all the time will this get censored will this get censored you know and they, and, and they said yeah yeah tell him your story it would all get censored it will you know everything I thought the okay, army is saying so that I it said will be my, censored yeah right. yeah so I said my story first and then the lads told their story yeah everything went well and then the media guy said you beat Rob Furlong's record, the Canadian sniper. I went, no. And I wasn't interested. And I went, no, not really. You know, just happy to be home, happy to come home because a lot happened on that tour with me. And then um, went on leave on the Thursday and on the Sunday we opened the papers and it was just my face in the papers, in every social media paper, on the internet, everything. My wife's name, my dog's name, my daughter's name where we lived, where I was born, where I went to school, everything, everything, what regiment I was in. You what know. you did? And then, um, yeah, what I did, yeah, my, for the tour. So right. is that when the Taliban then knew who you were and wanted yeah. revenge? so then, yeah, so they wanted to, remember Lee Rigby um, got beheaded in Woolwich, didn't he, bless mm. him, by them two guys, um, it, it was on the backlash of that as well. And then it released in the paper. They wanted to kidnap a Muslim soldier and also um, kidnap me. 
and they found a car in Birmingham lined out in plastic and the boot was all lined out ready to and then my photo was in the car ready to kidnap me yeah what the fuck yeah well I'm 6 foot 4 19 stone and they got to get me in the fucking car first <laughs> There he is. Didn't you have to leave the country or something, didn't they? I mean, yeah, we left the country. We left the country for start with. We left it for a month. We went to Spain. And then we came back and went to America for three years. So everything calms down. And we've been in the country, back in the country now, five years now. So, yeah. What were the army like? Didn't they Didn't they move you into a house and like build your panic room? And They didn't do that. The police oh. did that. The army did fuck all. Really? The army did absolutely fuck. They couldn't care if I rotted or got kidnapped by the Taliban or anything. They couldn't give a fuck. No, not at all. They they hung me out to dry. Yeah. How crushing is that? Because I know people in the army, and you know they dedicate their lives to it, and it's like a family. How crushing is yep. that for you? Oh, massively. It was always the army snipering marriage. So my wife was always third best. And I fucking seriously regret that. Now looking back at it, I should have put her first all the time because the army did, did fuck all. Absolutely nothing. And do you know what? I've been out... 2013, I got out of the army and March last year, I just won my pension case to get an army pension. You won your case, did you yeah. say? Yeah, I won my case. What do you mean you won your case? Why do you have to have a case? Because I was saying that... Um, I got a traumatic brain injury. I suffer from migraines. I've got PTSD. Um, I've had a double hip replacement and the pension they gave me was shit. Absolutely shit. So I applied. I went to court to get me a better case and yeah, I finally won it. They turned me down twice. Yeah, the judge said, you seem a very capable young man, Mr. Harrison. I thought, oh really? You're not walking my shoes every fucking day, do you? You mentioned the PTSD. Like... What is happening? What is happening with you at this point? Like, what's are you having? Like, I don't know what I, I haven't had PTSD before, obviously. And, um, but going on what you hear, you can understand from what you went through that you would have PTSD. Like, there's no questioning it. What is it? What are you doing? Like, what's happening in your head? It's hard. It's hard. I struggle with purpose, I struggle sleeping. I get horrible flashbacks. Sometimes I can taste blood and dust in my mouth from when I got blown up. I, I don't like crowds. Um, I fucking... I'm sad. I'm a sad person, you know, and I don't find things funny anymore. And I'm on medication, and the medication makes me feel numb. So if me and you, Andy, went to a tropical island and it was the best thing, the Maldives, and we loved it, you know, me, I'm just going, yeah, it's all right. You'd be going, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, it was all right. Because I feel numb to anything. And that's what the medication does to you. Makes you feel numb. You know, so you can't look forward to anything. And my wife suffers for it as well. I think my wife's got secondary PTSD off me. Because I'm sad all the time, because I'm miserable, because I isolate myself and I don't go out or anything, we miss loads of stuff because I just don't want to do it. You know? It's horrible. It's, it's a horrible, horrible thing to have. Yeah, it's horrible. I could have a good day today and I could wake up in the morning 
and have a serious, serious, serious mental health day. But I still get up. And what does a serious, still go to serious the... mental health day look like? Have you tried to kill yourself? Um, yeah, yeah. I suffer from suicide ideation anyway, where I think about it all the time. But yeah, I think about today's the day, Craig. Today's the day, mate. And do you know the reason I haven't done it? Because somebody's got to find me. Somebody's got to find me. And then I've infected them with my misery. You know, and if they do it, they've infected somebody else. So it's like a deck of cards in it, Donimo's. You know, it's a, it's a never-ending fucking circle. So I suffer in my own little world because I'm trying to protect other people from finding me. The survival skills that you, the school that you do, can you tell me more about what you what you do with that? Yeah, basically I've got a wood block down where I live. It's 57 acres of wood. I do everything in that basic bushcraft. So traps, snares, what are you foraging, uh, rabbits, squirrels. We get some, uh, and I've been to fishing. We learn how to do all that. And I do flint napping to make spears, do some forging, foraging, do some archery, everything, everything. It's, it's a jam-packed weekend. And veterans go for free. So um, because they give so much, and first, so the first-time responders. And I'm at the process of turning it into a charity so no one has to pay to come down everyone comes down for free that's suffering with mental health issues your mind's a powerful thing Andy. Mm. your mind's a powerful thing and sometimes the shit overtakes the good so when people say you've got a purpose Craig the survival school people are talking to but the shit overtakes sometimes well you've loaded up you your know, head well, with shit experiences yeah yeah. Are there charities that help veterans now that you'd recommend people listening to this should donate to or should look into? The only charity that I would do is the Veterans Lottery. It's the only charity that I would donate money to or sign up ten, £10 a month, get a lottery card and you do a lot. You can win up to 50 grand a month. They help the homeless veterans. They help a lot of things and they give a lot of money to small charities that are starting it's where not, can people find out more about you and i've got a web page it's the uh www.mavicsurvivalschool uh just put that into google and it'll pop up um if you want to know more about me get my book or go onto wikipedia mate it's been awesome to have you on the show thanks thanks so much for coming on craig no worries it's a pleasure mate and thank you very much for listening don't forget to get your ticket to the final live show that still has tickets available i'd love to see you next wednesday at the grafton in kentish town that's wednesday the 9th of august for a few buffalo trace whiskies and some stories with former royal marine denny denham and prison governor vanessa frake both of them have got some outrageous stories super interactive get to ask loads of questions super intimate small venue so come along be great to see you the link to the shows are in the description to this episode